I'm Rachel, the creative director for Ramdas's Love Serve Remember Foundation, and I'd like to welcome you to our Inner Academy, a virtual Dharma Hall where our family of wisdom teachers will help you navigate your daily life by bringing ancient wisdom into a modern context. With over 200 hours of audio and video teachings, meditations, and practices from teachers like Ramdas, Krishnadas, Sharon Salzberg, Jack Kornfield, Roshi Joan Halifax, Joseph Goldstein, and many more. The Inner Academy is your core resource for finding balance, presence, and navigating the ups and downs of your daily life. The Inner Academy has guidance for every step of your journey. Choose from an annual or monthly membership and gain access to past and future courses, retreat replays, virtual community, and much more. If you've been familiar with Love Server Member Foundation for a while, you'll know that most of our offerings are given freely or on a sliding scale basis. So when you subscribe to the Inner Academy, you're paying it forward and bolstering our ability to continue creating accessible offerings for all in the future, as Ramdas wished for us to do. Be here now and start your journey with Ramdas's Inner Academy today. For more, visit ramdas.org forward slash inner academy. Teaching meditation can be a deeply rewarding experience. Help others improve their mental and emotional well-being reduce stress, improve focus, increase self-awareness and self-regulation, all while deepening your own practice and understanding. Join acclaimed author, Buddhist teacher, and Emmy Award-winning musician David Nickturn on Tuesday, May 28th at 6 p.m. Eastern Time for a free online discussion on teaching meditation in Dharma Moon's renowned Mindfulness Meditation Teacher Training Program. Get certified by Dharma Moon to teach meditation lead group practice sessions, and work with individual students. Visit dharmamoon.com slash be here now for more info and to reserve your spot for the free online event with David Nickturn on May 28th. Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app today to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Yeah, I mean, neuroscience went through huge changes, but so did genetics. When I started teaching genetics back in the 80s, we thought there were 50,000 genes in the human genome. Now there's 20,000, you know, so we, we have learned a lot about genetics. Welcome to the Meta Hour with Sharon Salzberg, where Buddhist wisdom meets everyday life. This podcast is brought to you by the Be Here Now Network and features interviews with the top leaders, teachers, and thinkers of the mindfulness movement and beyond. For more information, visit BeHereNowNetwork.com backslash Sharon. Hey folks, welcome to the Meta Hour. I'm Lily Cushman and I produce this podcast. 
And we're here today for our 200th episode of the Meta Hour. Very exciting. And today's interview features a conversation with Sharon and two incredible thought leaders from the mindfulness movement. And that is Diana Winston and Sue Smalley, PhD. So I'll tell you a little bit about both of them before we get into the interview. Diana is the Director of Mindfulness Education at UCLA's Mindful Awareness Research Center. And she's also the author of several books, The Little Book of Being and Wide Awake, A Buddhist Guide for Teens. She's been practicing meditation since 1989, including a year as a Buddhist nun in Burma. She's also been teaching mindfulness since right around that same time and developed the evidence-based mindfulness awareness practices curriculum and the training in mindfulness facilitation, which trains mindfulness teachers worldwide. She's a founding board member of the International Mindfulness Teachers Association and a member of the Teacher Council of Spirit Rock Meditation Center. Sue Smalley is a PhD and a professor emerita in the Department of Psychiatry at UCLA. She's conducted seminal studies on the genetics of ADHD and autism spectrum disorders, publishing over a hundred peer-reviewed papers in the field of behavioral genetics. In 2004, she founded the Mindful Awareness Research Center at UCLA and recently helped to co-create the Kindness Institute, also at UCLA. Together, Sue and Diana have co-authored a book which originally came out 10 years ago and was just re-released in 2022 with a new afterword. That book is called Fully Present, The Science, Art, and practice of mindfulness. So if you are someone who loves to understand the science behind mindfulness, compassion practice, all these different meditation techniques, this episode is going to delight you to no end. There's so much great information here. And in particular, what the research has been revealing in the past decade since this book was originally released. So, as always, enjoy listening, and here's the episode. Hello to both Diana and Sue. Such a treat to speak with you today. Congratulations to you both on re-releasing your book, Fully Present, which originally came out 10 years ago. So much has changed in the last decade. Does it feel different to you each to be looking at these topics again now through the lens of 2023? Diana, let's start with you. And Sue, what are your thoughts on this after Diana? Well, I've definitely been watching the field, participating and um, being part of it and helping to see it grow over these years. 
And now to really explicitly look back at the last 10 years, it's pretty interesting. Like what actually has evolved? What has changed? What's been different in the 10 years where there's really been an exponential growth in this last 10 years in the explosion of mindfulness programs and um, sectors that mindfulness has entered and new ways of teaching teachers and lots has happened in the last 10 years. And I'll speak from the science side because, well, 10 years ago, we did a, a, a literature review of where the science was. And now it's been 10 years, fivefold the number of articles are available today. So it was a really monumentous task to try to summarize what's out there in the literature. And we brought in a great researcher to help us, a woman named Winnie Liang really looked at the literature to basically answer the question, did what we conclude in 2010, is that the same conclusion we would draw today? And the answer was resoundingly yes, that we think the science clearly supports mindfulness as a useful tool through a lens of science to um, promote health, well-being, both of the individual and others on the planet at large. Mm. Well, Diana, you've been on the podcast before, so I want to point listeners to episode 105. You almost hit 108, the magic <laughs> Buddhism and Hinduism, but you didn't quite. Episode 105, if you want to hear that conversation. And Sue, since you're here for the first time, I'd love to hear a little bit about how you came to this work for the listeners out there who aren't familiar with you. Thanks, Sharon. Um, I fell into mindfulness. I, I didn't go out seeking it. What happened is I was a very rigid, I would say, Western-oriented scientist who looked, saw the world through the lens of reason, using science as the tool for all knowledge. And I happened to be in the Department of Psychiatry at UCLA very focused on trying to identify genetic variants that contribute to health and human behavior, specifically childhood onset psychiatric disorders like autism and attention mm -hmm. deficit hyperactivity disorder. So that was my focus. I thought anything that wasn't, I thought actually of genetics as the holy grail. If we could figure out our DNA sequences, we could then map how to live your life, and that will be the answer to happiness and well-being and longevity. Then I got an early stage melanoma in 2002. It was very early stage, so it didn't require much other than surgery. But it was enough of a scare and a brush with my own mortality that I really had this wake-up call that I wasn't really in control of everything that was happening around me, despite what I thought. And that led me to pretty anxious state, but also wanting to take action. Um, and so I dove into what I would have rolled my eyes at a day earlier before this happened to me, meditation, yoga, lots of alternative practices that I read might be beneficial to help uh, cure cancer or prevent cancer, et cetera. So my goal initially was just health, but I 
dove into it. I took a leave of absence from UCLA, started meditating every day, six hours a day. I, I had been exposed to meditation in the 70s because I went to school, college in the 70s, and the Beatles had just come back. So many people learned transcendental meditation, including me, but I had never taken it seriously. I never really engaged in the practice, but I had this mantra from a long time ago. So I started using it every day and just sitting and practicing focused attention, paying attention to this word, and then watching my mind go and started exploring really like a scientist. I'd been really trained in understanding cause and effect. So I started applying it to my thoughts and feelings and trying to understand them. I also changed a lot of my external habits. So I started paying attention to these external habits. Like I always looked at my watch. I used the same burner on the stove and started changing external habits. That really helped me look at my internal habits and begin to investigate what are those and how do they arise. And what happened is after 30 days, I had just a profound shift in consciousness. And instead of feeling separate, competitive, muster, you know, having uh, floating feelings of envy, greed, anger, etc., I just fell into this very profound state of what I saw, what I didn't know what to call it, but I called it the oneness of the universe, this very interdependency, interconnectedness. And with it came just profound joy and bliss, something I'd not experienced on the scale of this before. Um, and it really altered my reality. I felt very much that I was living in the present moment, just in the experience of life. It was a really profound shift. I was also a mother of three, a long-term marriage. I had a lot of happy, happy moments in my family life, but it hadn't really translated over into my workspace, et cetera. Suddenly, I was just this very happy person. Mm -hmm. uh, so when I stepped back to try to figure out what happened to me, I started investigating uh, all the great religions, philosophy, the science of meditation, and it quickly became apparent that I wasn't the only one that had gone through this mm -hmm. and that we could really understand through the lens of internal knowing, through an intuitive lens instead of just reason and science. And that was the beginning of this journey. That's really beautiful. Um, I don't know if I ever told you this, but uh, it is a fairly recent memory on my part that there was a period of my childhood when I wanted to become a geneticist. And no. not that I, obviously, not that I really knew what it was, but you know, when people would ask a kid all the time, like, what do you want to be when you grow up? And uh, I must have had like a class on it in school with sunflowers. I don't know what, obviously, it was very elementary, but I decided, oh, I want to become a geneticist. And so that's what I would say. I want to be a geneticist. Or occasionally I would say playwright, which was a little deeper, but that has not happened either. But uh, so when you started talking about being a geneticist, I got kind of excited, actually. I thought, oh, yeah, I remember that. <laughs> well, it's been amazing, you know, on the outside of science um, to observe uh, something of this conversation and um, to feel the enrichment really on all sides that comes from it. Um, I've also noted that in terms of the benefits of meditation, my scientist friends are kind of more uh, moderate, you know. It's 
more the media that would say something like two and a half minutes of mindfulness and you will have no more implicit bias or something, you know, whereas the scientists were all like, it looks like probably maybe <laughs> one could almost say, you know, like yeah, different. I love the cautionness of science. <laughs> I do yeah. like that. I do like it because things change. Yeah. And I agree. It's really hyped in the media and people are yeah. very excited about it. And it's easy to make these blanket statements, but there's so much to do. Sue can speak more thoroughly to it, but the field is so young. There's so well, the other side of it, you know, is that, um, uh, speaking of implicit bias, you know, as one example, um, I had, it makes total sense to me that mindfulness practice and I hear loving kindness practice, even perhaps uh, more quickly, will challenge one's implicit bias. It will it will reveal it. It will highlight it. Allow one to let go of it more. Um, see that there are assumptions that we're holding, and so on. That makes total sense to me. And I'd heard that research was supporting that. And then I heard about a study which refuted that. It said that you know doing this in this case was mindfulness practice has no effect on implicit bias, and and that makes no sense to me as a practitioner. Uh, and then I read a, a commentary on the study that had come to the conclusion that mindfulness practice or insight practice had no uh, effect on implicit bias. And the, the length of time, the total length of time of the intervention, in other words, the mindfulness practice was five minutes. <laughs> and and uh, the person who was writing this commentary mentioned that, you know, they brought that up and and I thought, wow, the first five minutes of my practice, who can remember, you know? <laughs> like, uh, yeah. And, and, that, and then I think the um, principal investigator of the study, when challenged because of that, said, well, many studies just have five minutes of mindfulness practice as intervention. Yeah. I mean, the funny part about that is, Sharon, and, and because I'm asked that question all the time, like how much time do you need, how much practice mm -hmm. do you have to have? And it really does depend on the outcome that you're interested in looking at because mm -hmm. it could be blood pressure and maybe that takes several weeks, you know, mm -hmm. to have an impact. It might be mood or it might be anxiety and stress. And you let's take stress for a minute or anxiety. You know, in 30 seconds of a calming practice, people can already feel a slight shift sometimes. So sometimes things do happen fast. And how, on the other hand, we have habits that have been built up for years and years and years and years that might lead to implicit bias. So we, it, it just depends on the outcome. And I always tell this story because they've investigated how long it takes to perfect something or get good at something from music. And there was mm -hmm. a study that looked at how long it takes to learn to play the harmonica really well a violin, a piano, and they're really different durations, you know, like a harmonica, I think was 40 hours of practice to be pretty mm -hmm. good, but a violin was like 1200, I think. So I might have the piano one wrong, but <laughs> it might be piano, but they were very different. And, and so depending on what the outcome is that we're looking at, whether mm -hmm. it's mood, anxiety, implicit bias, any one of those outcomes could have a different degree of practice required mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. for you to get there. Plus, there's a lot of individual variability. 
And yeah. what happens for me will be different from what happens for you, which is one of the really exciting things that the science field is now looking at, like what kind of practice works best for whom and when, and then how to, how much do you need of that kind of practice to look at the outcome they're interested in looking at. And one of the things I, I because in our book, we talk about how mindfulness meditation can can reduce high blood pressure. Mm-hmm. But so can looking at a blood pressure cuff every day, try putting it on, looking at it. Mm-hmm. So you may have, and the same is true for say mindfulness-based cognitive therapy to anxiety or cognitive therapy to anxiety. They look like they have similar effect sizes. They have a similar effect. But it may be that a mindfulness-based practice impacts a lot of other areas that aren't even being studied in your life. Mm-hmm. And maybe maybe looking at the blood pressure cuff doesn't. It may, may, it may, may, may not. But so sometimes we're limited by what we can say because we look at a specific outcome and ask a question with that outcome in mind. Mm-hmm. Diane, I'm curious if you were really moved by the science before you began working on this book and how did you come to be working on a book together? Um, can I just throw in one more interesting study yeah. while we're in this conversation and I'll yeah, answer this. Um, we did a study like I think about a year or two ago at UCLA where we wanted to see if people were taught mindfulness and compassion practices, how it would impact their um, body image and then mm-hmm. how it would impact the implicit bias and and their, ex, well, implicit and explicit, but bias of others and weight stigmatization. And it was a small study. They only, they went through, it wasn't a five-minute study, five minutes of meditation. It was a, like total four hours of learning mindfulness and compassion. And it turned out that it did in the four, over the four weeks, it did help with their uh, body image. It, there was some like statistical improvement, but the um, did not affect their their views and attitudes towards others. So it's just interesting. Just going back to kind of what you were saying, Sharon, like there's a lot more to look at here. Yeah, no, it's fascinating because it also implies um, the context might make a difference. You know, the the conversation in the room might make a difference because uh, the feelings or the judgments you may have another may actually be exacerbated in the sense of how clearly you're seeing them. Absolutely. You know, and so what do you do with that information? You know, you know, can that be held in the idea of that, oh, all this stuff's going to come up. I don't actually have to take all of it to heart. I can question some of it, you know. I can let some of it go, all of that, or or maybe not. Maybe that's not one's expectation. Yeah, and bias is so deep. It's so deep, yeah. and, you know, and, and so a few weeks of meditation is not going to erase yeah. our bias. Oh yeah, it doesn't work that way. I mean, major education needs to happen around it. In addition, so I think originally we met. I was living up in the San Francisco Bay Area, and I think sometime I was visiting LA. And Sue was working with a postdoc who was interested in mindfulness and ADHD for adolescents, and had gotten um, a grant to do some research on that. And um, at the time, and this was like almost 20 years ago, I guess, um, there wasn't, there wasn't much going on for teens and mindfulness. And so I had written a book about it and, um, I was doing a lot of work in the field at the time. And so we, we were introduced to each other. I ended up, 
um, I ended up being the teacher on the study that they had planned. And then while we were together, we realized that we had so much in common in terms of the vision of bringing mindfulness out into the world in a way that was more secular, accessible, not necessarily within the Buddhist context, but available to everyone. And there was a lot of just like synergy as we met and had these visions of how do we take this stuff that Sue had had explored after her cancer scare and that I had been practicing, you know, since the late 80s. Um, how do we bring it out into the world? And then I remember the moment that Sue said, you know, Sue said, we can start this program at UCLA and I'd love for you to come be the teacher for it. And I said, I am never leaving the San Francisco Bay Area. <laughs> anyway, um, I've been 17 years now in Los Angeles. So, so much for that. Yeah. I remember when I met Diana because we we had the fundamentals of the mindfulness mindful awareness research center at UCLA. We were just starting to kind of create it, and we knew I, I knew we needed a really great teacher of mindfulness to help us build the whole education part. When I met Diana, there was zero doubt she was the right person mm-hmm. because of her ability to kind of move in between the Western secular world and her deep practice of um, that came out of a Buddhist practice, but her deep practice experience as a practitioner teacher. So there was zero doubt she was the right person. And I've been proven right over the last 17 years. Mm -hmm. And I I think so. Um, I think the book came out because at the time, you know, there's a lot of mindfulness books out there now, but I think in 2009 and 10 when we were writing the book and so forth it was um there wasn't something that had put together like the science like a really deep dive into the science alongside here's how to practice here's how to do it i think there were two, those two separate books but so the idea was sue's a scientist i'm the teacher um, of mindfulness, let's figure out how to put it together in one book and make it work and um Luckily, we each could do our own section, so it made it a little bit easier than, yeah, than if we were writing it completely together. And what do you think um, has been the inspiration for the publisher to reissue it, which is very exciting? Um, yeah, I think that, well, one, when we originally started looking at it, we were saying, are we going to update all of the science? And um, Because mm-hmm. the practice didn't change. Right. I mean, the practice is still the same, more or less. I, I know. I know the problem. <laughs> <laughs> the field, of course. Me know? I'm like, it's not new. It's not new. It's the same thing. 2,500 years. Um, anyway, the, um, so, the, so that part wasn't changing. But the science, of course, has changed. And then as Sue, mm-hmm. Sue realized, as she was saying before, as she started to research it, it's like, well, it's more, but it doesn't disprove anything we said. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So rather than updating the whole book, we thought, why don't we take a look back at the last 10 years and go, what has changed in the field, both scientifically and then my end mm-hmm. of it was like in the mindfulness field. And that's where, um, that's what the, the um, publishers got excited about. And, you know, we went ahead with that. Can you give us a, a synopsis, uh, actually each of you from your preview, what, what has changed? I mean, I, I, again, as a total layperson in this 
realm, I would say, well, look at how many people are studying compassion and not just mindfulness. Well, I would say that I think, Sharon, you raised the right point. What was studied initially and still there has increased dramatically are, are a lot of studies now looking at anxiety, depression, physical health, changes in the brain, changes in the immune system. That body of work increased over the last 10 years a lot. And the findings are super interesting, very confirmatory of what we thought and talked about with more understanding of how how mindfulness might work in -hmm. those areas. But the new area that just really has blossomed is looking at the impact mindfulness has on relationship, how Mm -hmm. it impacts how you treat other people, how you treat yourself, and how you treat the planet. So it really has shifted to studies looking at kinds of relationship, whether they're kind, full of gratitude, appreciation, um, care for one another or not, because we Mm -hmm. all have the capacity for both kindness and unkindness. And really, I think mindfulness is this tool to help you really discern or discriminate between um, thoughts and feelings and then subsequent actions that are beneficial or mm-hmm. not beneficial. And that's where I think the research is really interesting. We're seeing studies coming out showing that even short mindfulness practices or loving kindness practices, uh, there are, as you know, a whole host of types of practice, mm-hmm. can, can impact how people act toward one another. Um, and I could tell you a couple studies that we highlighted, mm-hmm. but that may be enough. Uh, I don't know. Uh, yeah, why don't you tell us a couple of studies, and then I have a question for Diana. I think the interesting one out of Northeastern University, David DeSteno's group, really get at this point. So they took um, people coming into the lab at, at their university, and they didn't tell them why. They, they may have said what they were coming in for, but they when they walked in, they handed them a set of papers to fill out to be part of the experiment. So the researcher would go, or the the subject, the person, would go go into another room with a set of papers, and there would be two chairs. And in one of the chairs, someone was sitting, so they would obviously sit down and start filling out the paperwork. Soon after, someone would come in on crutches and lean against the wall looking at these taken seats where there was no room for them to sit down and sigh in pain. And the question was, how often would the person filling out that paperwork get up and offer their chair to this individual on crutches in pain? Well, often they might look at the other person occupying a chair, and that person was a plant. They were not going to get up. So there's something known as a bystander Mm -hmm. effect. And if someone doesn't do something kind, you tend not to maybe do it as well. And then they studied how often does the person give up their chair. They found about 14 to 16% of the time, that's it, someone would offer their chair to the person in pain. However, if they did a mindfulness course prior, they found that the number jumped to 37 to 50%. So just a simple mindfulness practice led to a differentiation in how someone acted in the same scenario. And they repeated that experiment several times with different types of um, delivery of the mindfulness practice, different types of plants, et cetera. And the results were basically the same. 
Mm-hmm. Now, that kind of study shows that mindfulness practices really do impact how someone treats someone else. And that led to, um, that's led to many other studies looking at the impact of, of these kinds of practices on giving behavior, on gratitude, on you know, pro-social behaviors. That's great. I should say David and I have become friends over the pandemic, which means we've never met. <laughs> physically, but we spent a lot of time together on Zoom. So that actually brings up a question for me, that study, which I think is a fabulous study, um, that uh, points a little bit to what I was saying earlier about context and so on. Uh, because one of the things I said to David was, I have seen you know countless people kind of discover a quality of heartfulness and kindness in themselves they never imagined was there. And it's not artifice, it's not force. Something shifts for them as they feel more connected genuinely to the planet or those around them or even to themselves. And um, But I said to David, has anybody ever asked, uh, why are there so few chairs here? Like, where does the lab spend its resources? <laughs> and you know, and which is another kind of analysis, you know. Yeah. And yeah, uh, he laughed also, but um, you know, I I think that is another kind of education, and perhaps mm-hmm. rather than just becoming more good-hearted, which is a mm-hmm. beautiful thing in and of itself. Um, it and it's uh, it could be found in the Buddhist teaching in the sense of cause and effect and conditionality and look for causes and, you know, all of that, but it's not necessarily often emphasized. Mm -hmm. Love that. So Diana, do you find that uh, people's sense of um, social conscience and the need for their mindfulness practice to be connected to that has changed? Um, Hmm. I think, I think it varies. Um, Mm -hmm. I would say that, there's been more of an emphasis on the connection between mindfulness and social justice mm-hmm. in the last decade than when we originally got started. So, you know, very early on when, for instance, John Kabat-Zinn was um, mm-hmm. starting to, and, well, and the people around him were starting to build up my MBSR. I think, I think mindfulness got brought into the field as like stress reduction, help us with anxiety, depression, ADHD, mm-hmm. stress, chronic pain. And, um, and I think with the pandemic and the massive sense of well, all the like, you know, intense mental health issues that are going on, but also people's awareness of like what is happening in this planet in this time and the sense mm-hmm. of living in these intersecting crises of, you know, environmental and social, political, moral crises that we live in, I think that um, teachers in the mindfulness field are starting to make more connections and linking it in that way. So I know even mm-hmm. for myself, that's probably been a bigger change. I think I was more cautious, like teaching mindfulness to help with stress and anxiety, all which are, of course, incredibly beneficial. But now I'm almost always bringing in, like, let's look at the larger world we live in and how individual transformation can impact Mm-hmm. Um, our communities and neighborhoods and institutions and impact the world itself. Mm-hmm. And actually, I want to go back to, for a moment to your being a geneticist and asking you some questions, because one of the shifts I've seen, you know, having been uh, being old enough so that, you know, neuroplasticity was not a concept when I was 
doing junior high school science or something. Um, you really, missed your really calling, good. Sharon. I, I missed my calling, yes. <laughs> <laughs> I really, uh, I also wanted to be a journalist at some point, but that too eluded me. Anyway, <laughs> I've had a good life. It's really good. It remains good. Um, the, uh, you know, the idea that your brain could change toward the good in, in a positive mm-hmm. way was just, it was unthinkable. And then with the introduction of some of the research on mindfulness, um, that became kind of the form. And more lately, I hear about genetic expression, which I don't necessarily quite understand even, uh, and mindfulness. And so I wanted to ask you about the science uh, exploring genetic expression and even telomeres, which was kind mm-hmm. of exciting. Yeah. I mean, I do, of course, I was really excited when I started seeing these studies emerge because, yeah. you know, yeah. I mean, neuroscience went through huge changes, but so did genetics. When I started mm-hmm. teaching genetics back in the 80s, we thought there were 50,000 genes in the human genome. Now mm-hmm. there's 20,000, you know, right. so we, yeah. we have learned a lot about genetics, including just the whole field of epigenetics, the turning on and turning off of genes. So we've long understood that, that cells don't behave all the same, yet cells mm-hmm. in the body all contain the same DNA. So why is a liver cell a liver cell and a heart cell a heart cell? It has to do with gene regulation, which is what we're talking about, gene expression, turning Mm -hmm. off and turning on genes. And so molecular biologists have been studying now mechanisms to turn off and turn on genes from what cells are next to that cell to developmental factors, time, to... um, just what molecules are attached to the DNA that turn it on and turn it off. Well, what I think is super exciting from the research that's been done with mindfulness is that we're starting to see what are the behavioral changes, cognitive changes, attentional changes, how do those impact gene expression? What have we learned? We've seen that, we know that stress, chronic stress, can lead to gene expression changes that are not beneficial to the body. They're not useful for aging. They promote aging. They promote um, an unhealthy state where there's high inflammation and the immune system isn't working properly. So what researchers have started to investigate is looking at the genes that are involved in some of those uh, characteristics, like how the body responds to stress, and they've asked, does mindfulness have the counter effect? Does it allow you to turn on the genes that are turned off with stress? And that's exactly what they're finding in these early studies. They need to have a lot more. But, but the fact that through a directed attentional process that you can impact gene expression was, is pretty mind boggling from, uh, you know, old school genetics, because the, you know, we, I don't think many people doubted that environment could somehow impact it, but not self-directed environments like the mind. So that was super new. The other, the other element, this is look at, so what I just described is looking at genes turning on and turning off at the genetic level in tissue. Okay. So telomeres um, are, are these ends of the chromosomes in all the cells of the body 
Uh, chromosomes are just your DNA with the little protein wrapped tightly together in the cell, and they carry all your genetic information. The tips of the chromosomes have these caps on them in much the way that a shoestring has plastic tips. This work about telomeres won the Nobel Prize. It was shared with three people, including Elizabeth Blackburn, who's mm-hmm. done some of this research on what impacts telomeres. Because the study, studies have shown that chronic stress and aging lead to a de- deterioration, a shortening of the telomeres and a lessening of a particular enzyme that's needed to keep the telomeres long called telomerase. So what that research showed is that stress and aging are, are, you know, lead to the shortening of telomeres. So telomeres and telomerase can be used as a proxy. You might've heard you can get your telomere link checked and it can be used to give an approximate biological age based, you know, that might differ from your chronological age, but it's based on these telomere lengths. All right, so it's an indication of aging, long, and it could be an indication of longevity. Um, what some researchers have done now is look at does mindfulness meditation or meditation practices lead to a reduction in shortening of telomeres or an increase in the telomerase suggesting longer telomeres. And that's kind of exciting. Yes, it does. The yeah. few studies yeah. that have started to look at it um, seem to correlate meditation practice with longer telomeres. So again, these are just proxies for what's happening in the body at the genetic level. Yeah, yeah. That's quite great. And, and Diana, much of your work focuses around spreading mindfulness and helping to build the field, including teacher training. And I think of that as linked to another change that's happened in the past 10 years, which is the cultural conversation around mental health and approaching wellness as a more holistic system. And I'm wondering if you can talk about updates in the field in the last 10 years and changes in the way mindfulness is being taught. Yeah, the um, I agree. The conversation has changed around mental health. I think we're all saying, oh, People are struggling. It's time to address this. And um, mindfulness is being seen as a very profound tool in in the work to help heal and to help find more mental well-being. Um, So that is a a change. It's like more in the uh, mindfulness itself seems to be more in the conversation. Um, I'm contacted a lot around, especially like in the beginning of the pandemic, people were saying, what do we do? What tools do we have? How, can mindfulness help? Please, can it help? And yes, of course, here are the tools. And, and as Sharon, is, as we all know, <laughs> we're still teaching the same thing, but there's more of a I- interest is what it feels like. But the field itself has, I mean, I've watched it grow over, gosh, well, probably 30 years, but I've seen um, the mindfulness entering into so many different sectors, kind of mentioned this earlier, but it's getting, um, it's, so we see it in the medical and mental health fields and higher education and K through 12 education. It's in um, with first responders, the military, the um, in the corporate world. I mean, that's it just, it just keeps going. It keeps getting bigger and bigger. And there's more and more creative expressions that are both top down, meaning like someone comes up with a program and brings it into the schools or into the hospitals, but also 
a lot, like probably even much more so organic grassroots expressions of mindfulness from people who have their own practice and then are bringing it into the fields that they're part of. Mm-hmm. So that's been like an exciting development. Um, and then there's, I'll, I'll get to teacher training in a second because there's also like this whole thing. I mean, well, I can talk about it in different ways, but there's all the critiques of how the field is growing. So in 2017, um, meditation was supposedly became a billion dollar industry mm-hmm. and um, not mindfulness per se, but meditation as the bigger category. And I would say yeah. now, but, say zillion with a Z. No, 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 but the <laughs> billion. Um, so a billion dollar industry, and but I would say now it's a multi-billion dollar industry. And um, and this has to do a lot with the kind of the birth of the app, of apps, and that being a, the digital delivery. And that, I mean, all of that has changed the way mindfulness is delivered. And I remember, I mean, I remember meditating with you back in the early 90s at mm-hmm. IMS and you'd get a cassette tape of something, <laughs> right? And right. um now it's accessible at our fingertips. And, and, you know, there's incredible stuff that's ways in which mindfulness is being delivered through apps, but there's also like zero quality control and not a lot of research, or there's some research, but not nearly the amount of research that needs to happen on that. So, um, so we see like this industry, this huge industry, I'm still asking the question, not sure where the money is going to. I've now trained 500 or so mindfulness facilitators. And so far, most of them, are, I haven't, haven't received the billions of dollars coming in, but I'm, we're waiting. Um, but there's also, um, the teacher training has changed a lot in this last decade. So I think in a couple of different ways. One is there's much more awareness of trauma-sensitive practices. So mm-hmm. Teachers are learning how to work with people who experience trauma and what are adverse reactions to mindfulness. So it used to be like, oh, mindfulness is great. It'll cure everything. And now, of course, there's been a lot of science and Mm -hmm. looking at, you know, what are potential problems. So more trauma sensitivity, which is a great thing, more emphasis on accessibility. So how do you teach to people from, um, uh, you know, someone who has uh, physical limitations? How do you mm-hmm. teach walking meditations for people who can't walk? How do you even mm-hmm. have the sensitivity as a teacher to be thinking about this? Mm-hmm. And a lot of it related to the trauma-sensitive stuff is how we how we um, offer options, lots of options. If you can't notice your breath, notice the sounds. If you can't stand up, then do it sitting down, you know, things like that. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. so that's a big change. And also, when I first started in the mindfulness field, there was no regulation, no mm-hmm. standards, no accreditation. And um, I, there is some in the MBSR world. I shouldn't say there was none. They're they're doing some work. But in the many other programs outside of MBSR, we've worked to develop the International Mindfulness Teachers Association to accredit programs that meet certain standards and credential people who've gone through that and to help mm-hmm down the road have an ethics board and a process for grievance and continuing education and really just professionalizing and standardizing the field. And that's really in the last number of years. It's a lot. It's really a lot. Yeah. And I wonder, Diane, if you could just um, say something about the Mindful Awareness Research Center so that people have a a clear view of what it's doing currently. 
Yeah. So this is our center at UCLA that Sue started and we've now been around well, I've been there 17 years, but Sue, I think it started a few years before I got there. Um, it's a it's both a research and education center, although our primary focus is on education. We have done about 20, 25 research studies over the years. Um, and so the center is, uh, we teach both in UCLA and now it's global. So some of what we do is we have undergraduate courses. We do a lot. We're in the psychiatry department in the medical school. So we do a lot within um, within UCLA health system, but also to whatever area of UCLA um, in the university as needed. And then we also, we will, our programs are free to UCLA students. But then we reach out to the Los Angeles to the Los Angeles community, and um, we have lots of classes, programs, events. We're going to do our first secular retreat this year. Um, actually, we've been doing shorter ones, but the first longer one we're doing. Um, and then I've been doing teacher trainings for many, many years, um, as I mentioned, training mindfulness facilitators. So it's a pretty broad educational and research program that's now really integrated into UCLA. They made an app for us, speaking of apps, mm. a few years ago called the UCLA Mindful app. And it's an educational app that we're so proud to have, um, to have be, you know, a part of our offerings. Great. And Sue, let's talk about kindness for a moment, because that is one of my favorite things to talk to you about. Uh, and one of your many achievements is your involvement in the creation of the Kindness Institute at UCLA. So I'm wondering if you could speak about that. Well, it's funny because it actually arose from the Mark Center at our first teacher training program. I was sitting in the curriculum, sitting with the curriculum, and it seemed really obvious all of a sudden that mindfulness had been secularized and introduced in lots of programs around the country and more growing. But there was no explicit discussion of any kind of ethic associated with it mm -hmm. or any kind of way of living your life. And it seemed that, obviously, I had discovered, you know, and I read and I saw kindness seemed to be the simplest ethic to orient us by as a human race, species, um, that if you can become clearer on how your thoughts, actions, how your thoughts and feelings lead to actions and whether those actions are beneficial to humanity or not, then um, we're going to be moving in a better direction. We'll be creating a kinder world. So that it was really that kind of idea that I know that in the Buddhist tradition, they, ethics are a big part of it. There's guidelines, mm -hmm. you follow these, you know, these behaviors but if you look at them, I think ultimately they come down to being kind. Uh, I think I've heard you say kind and honest, but being honest to me is being kind as well. <laughs> so um, anyway, that was sort of the origin of the Kindness Institute, the idea of building an institute that would embrace and, and have mindfulness as a component, but would be about understanding what do we know about the science of kindness? How do we help it flourish individually, as groups, as a humanity, um, based on science? But also, what, how does it get integrated into social programs into our society, whether that's a social program 
of prison reform or prisons, or it's justice that we've talked about juvenile justice, or it's business, or it's medicine, education, all these sectors, we wanted to ask the question, what if kindness was a core component of that social system? What would it look like? Can we create something? Can we shift us toward that? And I met a man named Matt Harris, who was an alumni of UCLA, maybe four years ago, five years ago, who was interested in doing something um, good for UCLA. And we started talking about um, a gift uh, for developing a kindness institute. And he and Jennifer, his wife, gave a very generous gift to UCLA to build the Badari. It's called the Badari Kindness Institute, which is really to bring the science of kindness with social impact. How do we do what I've just described and do it well? And um, so it's at its beginnings because COVID hit right at the beginning, but it's uh, growing and, you know, we are figuring out every day how to bring these kind of orientations of what the science tells us to um, lean us toward a kinder world. It's really, really beautiful. And if, if there's an Institute of Kindness, can one get a degree in kindness at UCLA? Not yet, but I think they will eventually. Because yeah. they get degrees in mindfulness at Oxford and Cambridge. and Yeah, yeah, and I, yeah. that's our vision. I, I know Columbia just started a climate school. So mm-hmm. that would be the dream down the line. We do a minor perhaps first in kindness. First up there, and let me tell you, Scientists don't call it kindness. They usually call it pro-social behavior. There's lots of other words for it. That was a hard sell just to get it called kindness. But I think people know that. People understand it. So I'm glad that we got that in the pipe. It's pro-social behavior and emotional regulation, right? Exactly. That's that's the terminology. Yeah. (laughs) That is really funny. Uh, Speaking of amazing public programs, I just want to spend a minute uh, Diana, hearing about your meditations that were featured on the California Governor's COVID-19 response website. Tell us about that. Um, yeah, we were contacted by another institute at UCLA who was working closely to build the mental health resources for the governor's website. And this was, you know, a couple of years ago, obviously, at the start of the pandemic. And um, so we started talking with them and they wanted our meditations on there. And I thought, wonderful, that's great. But then they said, would you mind translating them into other languages that are popular in California? Mm. And it turned out that there were, they, they had like a list of 15 or 20. Mm-hmm. And we looked around at all of our students who had gone through our teacher trainings over the years. And we probably had, we had about 15 of them. So we translated five core meditations into now we have 16 different languages, including American wow. Sign Language. There's um, Armenian, Tagalog, Vietnamese, Mandarin, Russian, uh, Spanish. I mean, you name it. There's a lot of, uh, and we're still building that library up. So the cool part about the whole thing is that we then, um, so that's now available on the UCLA Mindful app. It's available on the um, governor web, governor's website, which is called Cal Hope. And, um, and the, the, the sort of funny side point to it all is that the money came from FEMA. 
So mm-hmm. um, I always like to say that FEMA, Federal Emergency Management Authority, is it funded mindfulness. <laughs> so <laughs> it's pretty cool. All right. May it be just the beginning. Mm. No, I was actually very moved in um, different situations seeing that as uh, the kind of vast, vast mental health implications of the suffering people were going through uh, included remedies that were opportunities to practice mindfulness that people were coming forth and uh, offering that. And it, it was just so moving that, oh, look at that, you know, even here in, in the sense of crisis, people are are assuming there might be some kind of benefit. and. May there be, you know, if people practice. Absolutely. Certainly benefited me, you know, like. 100%, yeah. That's so great. So before we finish, um, I would love for either of you to lead us in some kind of meditation practice to bring our time to a close. I think Diana volunteered. <laughs> yeah, I'm happy to do it. Um, so I was thinking just because we were, you know, we're reissuing our book. And we didn't change anything because the meditation doesn't change that much. I'm going to do something Mm -hmm. like going really back to the basics. How about that? Um, Okay, so wherever you are, get comfortable. Obviously not closing your eyes if you're driving while listening. Finding a posture that you can sustain. And your hands resting where they're comfortable, your back upright if that is accessible. And your eyes, if available, can be closed. But if you prefer, leaving them open but looking downward to not be too distracted. We can start by taking a few deep, longer, slower breaths. Allowing yourself to arrive here in the moment. Notice your feet on the ground if that's there or the or the base of your body as it touches the ground. Having a sense of there's heaviness and warmth, tingling. You can feel the sensations and you might also have a sense of the earth below you, supporting you even if you're many stories up. And now let's turn our attention to the sounds around us, the sounds in the room, outside the room, sounds coming and going. Listening to the sounds as if you're listening to your favorite music. Curious, open. And then bring your attention into your body and see if you can feel your breath in your body. At this point, the breath is at its own natural rhythm in and out through your nose. You might feel your abdomen rising and falling or your chest expanding and contracting. Or the air moving through your nose, in, out. It 
So let's pick something to focus on for just a few more minutes. You can pick your breath in your abdomen, chest, or nose. Or if you enjoyed listening to sounds, you can do that. They all work equally well, so if you can't decide, just choose something. We'll notice breath after breath or sound after sound. One breath ends, the next breath begins. And when your attention wanders away, there's nothing wrong. You didn't do it wrong, it's just what happens. You can notice your attention has wandered and gently bring it right back to the breath or to the sounds. Just do that over and over. So maybe a minute as we sit here and practice together. And as we close the meditation, noticing how you're feeling, notice how your body is, notice what's happening in your emotions, your mind. See if you can let whatever is here be here. And then when you're ready, open your eyes or end the meditation. Well, thank you so much for that. It's been wonderful to catch up and hear about all the great work you're doing. Thank you so much for joining me today. And a big thanks to all of our listeners out there. Great to be with you, Sharon. Thanks a lot. Thank you. Thank you for coming. To learn more about either Sue or Diana's work, I encourage you to visit their websites, suesmalley.com, S-U-E-S-M-A-L-L-E-Y.com, or dianawinston.com, D-I-A-N-A-W-I-N-S-T-O-N.com. Fully Present is now available. It's second edition, wherever books are sold. This has been the Meta Hour podcast. Thanks so much for listening. May you be safe. May you be happy. May you be healthy. And may you live with ease. Hey folks, thanks for listening. To learn more about Sharon and her ongoing teaching schedule, as well as online courses and a free guided meditation, check out her website at SharonSalzberg.com.